Let's pray. Uh, Father, we uh, always come before Your throne in Christ's name uh, uh, to be able to call You Father, the One who is Lord of all creation, the One who spoke the stars into existence and gave them a name, every one of them, that not one of them is missing. Father, we praise Your name. We are so thankful for Your mercy and grace that saved us. Father, I pray that You would use this church body for Your glory, that we would be Your servants, that we would know who we are, that we would remember who we are, that we would see uh, this world with eternal eyes, that we would see the, Your everlasting kingdom, that we would see the privilege of service to You. Father, we know that we sin so often that our hearts grow dull, that we become captivated with things that cannot satisfy, with things that are meant to point us to Your glory and yet we worship them. Father, forgive us for our idolatry. Lord, our desire is that we would be single-minded for Your glory. Father, would You use our lives in Aberdeen, the surrounding communities? Would You use our lives, sinners saved by grace, empowered by the Holy Spirit, gifted by the Holy Spirit to serve one another and to be witnesses of Your Gospel to the ends of the earth. Father, would You raise up missionaries from among us? Would some of our children take the Gospel, Father, to the nations? Father, create in us even more faithfulness and investment as we gain perspective. Lord, I ask that You would now use Your Word and this sermon to glorify Your Son that You might be glorified in Him. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, the last three weeks we've been in Luke uh, chapter 17 looking at the second coming of Christ. This morning we're going to look at the second coming of Christ in Revelation chapter 19, and we're going to begin in verse 11. Revelation chapter 19, beginning in first, verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness He judges and makes war. 
His eyes are like a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. The armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he'll rule them with the rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun with a loud voice. He called to all the birds that fly directly overhead. Come gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who is sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that comes from the mouth of him who is sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. This passage reveals to us Christ in glory. The righteous Christ in all His glory. His first coming was a humble coming. His first coming, the world did not take notice. But in His second coming, there will be none who can ignore it. This sermon is meant to be practical. This vision that the Holy Spirit gave John to record for you and for I was not just to interest us like a movie, but to cause us to live in such a way. This vision is to bring about change in our life, to bring about worship in our life and as you can see in your notes, the main charge of this sermon is this. Live according to your true identity as it relates to the King of Kings. Live according to your true identity, 
Christian. Jim Hamilton, a professor at the seminary I went to, and the author of a commentary on the book of Revelation, helped illustrate how the Christian life might ought to be lived in light of the second coming of Christ by considering the sentinel soldiers that guard the tomb of the unknown soldier at Arlington National Cemetery in Washington, D.C. How many here have seen the tomb of the unknown soldiers and seen the sentinels guarding the tomb? All right, maybe half those here have witnessed these soldiers that are serious, so serious with the cause that they have been given. Let me just share with you a little bit about these sentinels that guard the tomb. They are very disciplined and impressive men. They are chosen from the 1st Battalion of the 3rd U.S. Infantry, known as the Old Guard. Less than 20% of those who apply to guard the tomb will ever be selected. To know how serious they take this charge to guard the tomb of the unknown soldier that honors all those who have fallen in battle that were never identified. To serve on that particular day that they serve in the summer, it's a half hour on duty. In the winter, it can be up to an hour. And uh, when the cemetery is closed, sometimes they guard for two hours. But just to give you an idea how serious they take this, every soldier prepares their uniform for duty for about eight hours of preparation. Eight hours of preparation just so they can have their uniform perfect when they are on guard. You're not even qualified to be a soldier if you're not 5'11 to 6'4 and every one of their waists is 34 inches. This soldier represents the ultimate soldier, the ultimate discipline. The gloves they wear are kept wet year-round. They are never dry. The wetness gives them proper grip on their rifle. There is a mat that runs in front of the tomb, and those soldiers take 21 perfect steps. Their head does not bob up and down. They learn to walk in such a way. Their gun does not bob up and down. They walk 21 perfect steps and then they face the tomb for exactly 21 seconds. After 21 seconds of facing the the tomb, they then turn back in the direction from which they came, they change the rifle in their hand, and they stare in that direction for 21 more seconds before they take 21 
perfect steps in that direction only to be repeated again and again. This memorial has been guarded since 1937. Seven days a week, 24 hours a day. When the cemetery is closed and no one is watching the performance, they are doing the exact same thing. And as you read about it, and maybe as you've seen it, you think, what's all the fuss about? Seven days a week, 24 hours a day, perfect uniform, perfect steps. If you're 5'10", you don't qualify to be one of these honored soldiers. They continue through hurricanes. Hurricane Isabel, soldiers were still on duty as trees collapsed in the cemetery around them. Why do they do it? Why do they guard it? The sentinels do this, Hamilton writes, because they feel that the unknown soldiers, soldier who is buried in the tomb and the soldiers they represent, deserve the very best that they have to give. Precision, discipline, and honor. The unknown soldier deserves their very best. That's why they do it. To say something about the United States military and their discipline. Those soldiers died for the freedoms of this earthly nation. They're given a badge. Those who serve, and it'll be stripped at any point in their life, if they don't live according to the highest code of conduct. They've committed their lives to this honor. Hamilton writes, their commitment is not to a king or to an eternal cause, but to unknown men who've given their lives to secure the freedoms and ideals of our earthly democratic nation. That's why they do it. That's why they have the precision, the discipline, the monotony. What seems insignificant every step, every second. They don't do it for a king and they don't do it for anyone they even know. They do it for the unknown soldiers. And as we consider the king, the king of the universe, the king who shed his blood for your sins, the question is simply this. How ought you to live your life in light of who he is?
Are you living your life in light of who you are in Christ, Christian? Does Christ define you? Or are you better known for something else? Or someone else? That's the question. Let's consider verse 11 of our text. This section of Scripture could be divided into three parts. The three parts have transition when John says, then I saw, you can see in verse 11, and then in verse 17, then I saw, and then in verse 19, then I saw. You can, uh, this first section is all about the glory of the king who is coming. What is he like? Verses 17 and 18 is the calling of the great supper of God, the great feast for the birds of the air. And verses 19 through 21 describes the victory. So let's begin in verse 11 and look at the glory, ponder the glory of Christ the King. And let me invite you, children and adults, to begin to think more like children think. When I say ponder, what I mean by that is you have to meditate and think about words you're reading. You can't just read them and hear them and say, I already know that. You have to use the imagination God gave you as you look at His words and you have to beg of the Holy Spirit to help you meditate on this in such a way so that it changes you and I. Ponder the glory of Christ the King. We read, Then I saw heaven opened. That's where Christ is. After He ascended into heaven, He went to the right hand of God. So he sees heaven opened and behold, a white horse. Which tells us about Christ the King. He's a conquering king because the white horse is the war horse. This is what generals and emperors rode into battle. All of John's contemporaries would understand this horse to be a war horse. And so the one who is sitting on the war horse is coming to make war. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true which means he is a unique king. He's not only a conquering king, but he's unique. He's the first ruler, the first king who can truly be called faithful and true. In Matthew's genealogy of Christ, 
at the very beginning, when David is, or when Solomon is described, he's described as one who is David beget with Uriah's wife. Well, you might think of David as a faithful and true king, but not like this king who was faithful and true. And if we're honest, across this country, in McDonald's and coffee shops scattered abroad, are men and women in their retirement maybe, drinking coffee, discussing politics, arguing over who is more faithful, who is more true, And it extends all the way down to our children. My children are asking all the time, who's the good one? Who's the bad one? Which one are we for? To which we're continually telling our children is there isn't really any good ones. There's some that might not be as bad as others. But there's only one king who is faithful and true. And isn't it amazing that all of our hearts, if we're honest, are longing for that day when the one in power is perfect. And he'll do exactly what he said. And he will do it according to truth. In fact, he is the truth. And then we see, it says, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. So this coming king is a righteous judge. He's a righteous judge. He judges rightly. The one in power, the king is not only a king and the warrior, but he's also the judge and he judges rightly. And then in verse 12 it says, his eyes are like a flame of fire. Which means that this righteous judge, who's also a king, is an all-knowing judge. That's what his eyes like a flame of fire uh, illustrates how fearful to stand before a judge that doesn't just know the evidence that was brought into the courtroom but knows everything this Christ this king is all knowing at all times See, we can feel pretty good about ourselves in our flesh if we can string a week together, maybe, of restraining our flesh, fighting by the Spirit in the Word of God. And we can start to feel like it's going pretty good. But when you think of the judge as one who sees everything, not only your actions, but your thoughts. And not only that, we forget and he never forgets. His eyes are like a flaming 
fire, which means he remembers a thousand years ago like it was today. Which means this judge, if we weren't covered by his own blood, would be the most terrifying judge there could ever be. Which means all mankind is put into one category. Sinners and rebels in rebellion to the one who is righteous and true and faithful and who knows all things. He's an all-knowing judge. And then he writes in verse 12, in on his head are many diadems. What kings would do is they would have a soft banded uh, headband that would have diadems in it. And each one of those diadems would signify a nation or a people that have been conquered. So that a king with many diadems is sovereign over many lands. And this king is king over the entire universe, over all nations. As we're going to see in a moment, he's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. So he's the sovereign king. And he has a name written that no one knows but Himself. And this points to His divinity. He is the divine King. He's transcendent. Got to use your minds. He's transcendent. He is infinite. He is incomprehensible. The fact that there's a name written, he has a name that no one knows but himself, means that although we can know much about God through his revelation, we do not have an exhaustive knowledge of God, for he himself is infinite and incomprehensible. He is the divine king. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. Now the debate on this verse, verse 13, is simple. Maybe you can even see it. What does the blood that's dipped in blood rep represent? There's really two options. One, it either represents that this king is the same king who died on the cross and shed his blood for sinners, which is true. Or it could represent the fact that, as we're going to see in a few moments, he treads the winepress of the wrath of God, therefore his robe is full of blood. And those who go for the first say, well, he hasn't tread the wine press yet. That's still coming in the text. And uh, 
those who uh, believe it represents the fact that he treads the wine press point to what's coming right after this. I don't think we have to pick necessarily. Both are true. So on this one, I have that the king is a warrior savior. He is both a warrior on a white horse and the righteous judge who will win the battle. And that same one is the Lamb of God who is slain for sinners. Both of those are true. Isaiah 53.5 says, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. This is the Gospel. Are you hearing it? He was judged for what you did. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds we are healed. That is true. He is a Savior to sinners. Isaiah 63, 1-3 describes this one with a bloody robe as well. Isaiah 63, 1 says, Who is this who comes from Edom in crimson garments from Bozrah? He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like one who treads the winepress? I have trodden down the winepress alone. And from the peoples, no one was with me. I trod them in anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their life's blood splattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. When we think of Christ, when you look at the Scripture and you give attributes to Christ, you want to know what was He like? We have to admit He is glory on both sides of the spectrum. No one is more humble than Christ. No one is more meek than Christ. And yet, no one is more fierce than Christ. But what is Christ not? He's not... You can never say He's just like a sentimental being. You see the Lamb of God dripping in blood, hanging naked on a cross? Or you see the Son of God coming in all of His glory with blood dripping from His robe? We begin to realize that the Jesus of kind of a sophisticated culture that doesn't want to think about tough things, want to keep things light, that group of people, if they read their Bible with their eyes open, cannot find that Christ. That's not how He's described. He's full of love, but His love cost Him His life. He's full of righteousness, so He flipped tables over and cleared the temple. He's full of wonder and power, so much so that his very best friends who love to fish tell him to get out of the boat, away from me. 
Your power is frightening. He's a glorious Christ. And then we read in verse 13, and the name by which he is called is the word of God. This can either be understood to represent that he is the revelation of the Father. You want to know what God is like? Look at Christ. He is the expression. He is the exact imprint of His very nature. If you know Christ, you know the Father. That's for sure what is meant when John talked about the Word in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh, took on human form. But what this text might also point to here in Revelation and in the context is that this shows that He is the final Word. He is the final authority. He is the divine judge. And what He says stands. He is the Word of God. He is. No one talks after Him. Once He's laid His judgment, judgment is laid. And so He is the true revelation. He's the King who is the true revelation of God. And then in verse 14, we read, And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. So who is this army that follows Christ in his second coming? They also are on white war horses. They're called an army. They're not merely spectators. They're called an army and they're on white war horses. Well, if you were to read all the way through the book of Revelation, it's clear that these are the saints. Revelation 3, 5 says, the one who conquers will be clothed in white garments and I'll never blot his name out of the book of life. I'll confess his name before my father and before his angels. And then in Revelation three eighteen, we read, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you may be rich in white garments that so you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. These, are, uh, these in white robes are the believers. In chapter 4, verse 4, we read, around the throne were 24 thrones and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads and those elders representing the church. After this, and then, or, and then Revelation 7, 9. After this, I looked and behold a great number that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and all peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their 
hands. And even the prophet Joel in Joel 2.11 says this, The Lord utters His voice before His army, for His camp is exceedingly great. He who executes His word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? So even Joel prophesies of a great army with Christ. It's a very great and awesome day, Joel writes. And if you look back at the beginning of Revelation 19, and you look at the marriage supper of the Lamb uh, in verse 7, this is Revelation 19.7. Let us rejoice and exalt and give Him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints, which by the way would be impossible without the Holy Spirit. There is no righteous deeds from saints without the new birth from Christ. And so as we consider this army, if you're a Christian, it's talking about you. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following Him on white horses. And what we're going to see that comes after this is Christ doing all the fighting, which raises the question, why in the world are we there? And why in the world are we on war horses? And why in the world are we called an army if Christ wins the battle Himself? What Hamilton says about this is right, I think. The army behind Christ displays the glory of Christ. Because if Christ is coming in all glory and He wants to put His power on display, you want to know what He gives as exhibit A? You. And you. If Jesus wants to show off, He takes wretches like myself and like you who have no place in heaven. And He clothes them with white robes. Christ is showing off in His second coming. And His trophy is you and me. How can I ever be made clean? Job says, if, you, if I wash my clothes with lye, with soap, and I wash them in snow, still my clothes will abhor me. He, he says, I'm the greatest man on earth at the time, Job, is still too filthy. He still makes his garments soiled. And yet we're there, and we come with him in glory to reflect the power. Not just the mercy of Christ, the power of Christ. When Jude says that he's able to 
make us stand before the presence of His glory with great joy? That's the most shocking statement in the world. You and I are going to stand before the blazing presence of God Almighty. And we're going to stand. We're not going to be destroyed. How? The power of Christ. That is how. And then we read, From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress. Just think of it. The winepress of the fury of the wrath of God. I am mesmerized by storms. I like watching storm chaser videos of men who build. I'm not saying they're smart, but they build tank-like vehicles and try to put their vehicle in the most fierce storms ever. And this one vehicle the, called the TIV, the TIV, uh, was put in an F4. Finally, a vehicle in the middle of a big tornado. And I couldn't wait to see the video. And they didn't quite get the door latched. And you want to know what the video is? It's black windows. And the sound on the video camera quits working. It's going in and out. It's like... And it's black. And it's like the fury of an F4 tornado, which is nothing compared to the fury of the wrath of God. The video is too scary almost. A tornado at two miles away is pretty, maybe. Inside the fury, inside the tempest, it is terrifying. And so what does it mean he'll tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God? The Almighty. How powerful is His wrath? How much hatred does God have for sin? Who's really going to stand in that day? Isn't the sentimental Christian that just says, I'm better than the next guy next door? Really? Have you read Revelation 19? Has it brought you to repentance to where you say there is no hope for me lest Christ pay the price for my sins? And then we read on his robe and on his thigh he has the name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Let me tell you, Christian, you're a servant of the King. You're in the same family of the King. And I'll just confess as a fellow believer struggling in the fight of faith, often I can lose sight of who I am and live like mere mortals that don't have glory waiting them. Do you have any idea 
of who you're going to be in Christ. The glory that is going to be yours. And yet, how often do we live as though this life is what it's all about? And then he says in verse 17, Then I saw an angel standing in the sun with a loud voice. He called to the birds that fly directly overhead, Come gather for the great supper of God. This is the second supper in Revelation 19. If you look back at verse 9 of the same chapter, Revelation 19, the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. That supper will take place in heaven. This supper will take place on earth. Two suppers. You and I will either share in a supper with Christ in heaven or you will be the supper of birds of prey. Where will this happen, Jesus? Where the vultures gather, the corpse is. On this day, dead men and women and kings will scatter the earth. And the interesting thing about this text is, He's calling them to supper and the supper hasn't been prepared yet. That's how sure the victory is. He hasn't done it yet. We know what he's about to do. Come gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings and of captains and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and their riders and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both great and small, which means that your status on this earth means nothing when you face the king. Nothing. If you're a slave in rebellion, you'll face the wrath of the lamb. If you're a king in rebellion, you're going to face the wrath of the Lamb. The Gospel levels everyone out on the same playing field. And then we read in verse 19, the third section where he says, and I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies to make war against him who is sitting on the horse and against his army. So I think during the Great Tribulation, the Antichrist is going to come into power by the power of Satan. He's going to do mighty signs by the power of the false prophet. In a sense, Satan produces a false trinity. The beast being the false son. The false prophet being the false Holy Spirit. And Satan being the false father. He better become like God if he's going to face God in the end. And so in the utter attempt, the utter suicide mission, those of this earth, those who like Adam and Eve wanted to go their own way. They don't want God's way. They want to go their own way. They don't want Him to stand in authority over them. Take their stand against Christ. And unlike so many movies that 
end with the good guy and the bad guy in a 15-minute fight scene. Looks like the good guy's going to lose. Looks, you know, you don't, it's like you know the good guy's going to win, but they make it seem like he might lose for 15 minutes. Unlike that, we read in verse 20, and the beast was captured with the false prophet who in his presence had done signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. He defeats them with a word. And his word is true. And his word is righteous. And his word is just. And there is no hope for those who choose the battle against him. Now Jesus said some terrifying words. He said, he who is not with me is against me. Which means there's not three groups of people. It doesn't say, he who is against me is against me. He says, he who is not for me is against me. And the question is, which side are you on? Are you for Christ? Is he define your life? Is he your only hope? Are your eyes set on heaven, there is no neutral. None of us are good enough to be in his army. So it's only those who admit they're not and get on their faces and repent and say, is there any hope for me? And then look to Christ, the only hope for sinners and cling to him. In 1 John 3, We read, see what kind of love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now. You are God's child now, Christian. And what we will be has not yet appeared. You're not in glory yet. You don't look that impressive yet. You still have to repent now. But what he says, get this, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure, which means anyone who hopes in the appearing of Christ will live a life purifying themselves because that's who they are. Those soldiers live a certain way because they know who they are serving and who they are honoring. And how much more precise ought our lives be if Christ is king than even those soldiers? How serious should we take every day that's a gift given to us. Don't live for the world. Psalm 1-4 says, The wicked are not like the righteous that are planted 
in firm soil, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Or Proverbs 23.4, Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. When your eyes light on it, it is gone, for suddenly it sprouts wings, flying like an eagle towards heaven. Don't let your life be controlled by becoming rich when in a moment it can be gone. Don't be a fool. Live in light of who Christ is. And I want to finish with this. Von Ablin's brother-in-law, David Philip Yexley, died March 12th. Considered by most standards, too young. And Vaughn sent on his obituary. I want to read just a small part of it to you. David married his high school sweetheart, Joyce Larson, on September 23, 1978 in Aberdeen, South Dakota. They raised two beautiful daughters, Amy Jo and Hannah Ray. As a devoted dad, David dedicated every weekend to spending time with his daughter Amy Jo, who has special needs. Their 45-minute car rides always included singing Wind Beneath My Wings and enjoying a Dairy Queen blizzard. David shared his love of sports with his daughter Hannah, attending many KU Jayhawk basketball games while following and cheering on the SDSU Jackrabbits, Kansas City Chiefs, and Royals. Joyce was grateful for David's faithful commitment to the Lord. He left behind five years of his prayer journals, including dozens of names of friends and family who he diligently prayed for to know the Lord as well as prayer for family decisions and wisdom for his pipeline. If you knew David, your name was in his prayer book. David woke up one morning. Looks like a massive heart attack gone in a moment. But he lived in light of who Christ is and who he is in Christ. Let's let the vision of Christ coming with all of His attributes and all of His glory affect our perspective in this world. Father, I pray that everyone here would know Christ in a saving way, that they would confess their sins, that they would see Jesus as the perfect sacrifice that, Father, You gave because You loved the world. That's why You gave Christ. Father, that everyone here would cling to Him as their only hope. Father, what glory You bestow on us to ride behind Christ. But none of that glory, Father, reflects our goodness in and of ourselves, but Your great salvation. Lord, I pray, would You use this Word? Would You use Your Word to humble us? 
and cause us to live lives so that at the end of our lives we're not found to be fools, but that we cling to that which will last forever. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.